0: The Christmas story is a remarkable story. It, it, it really is. Uh, this very idea of God entering our world, coming down to earth as a baby, taking on flesh and blood, living as a, a person, a human, is, is really remarkable in itself. And see, it's not only that, that God would, the creator of the universe would come and enter the world that makes it so remarkable. I think in the way that he came also makes it even more remarkable. You see, he came in such a humble way. Now, now for me, if it was me and I was coming in and that was kind of me in the situation, I think I would probably do it a little differently. I would make sure that it was all over Twitter and Facebook and I'd have people ready with their Snapchat stories and their Instagram posts and all those things ready to go to make sure that they knew that I was showing up and the party was there. But that was not the way that Jesus, that God, that God did that. Uh, he came in a very humble way. In fact, you see, Jesus was actually born in a stable and, and, and placed in a feeding trough. You know, a place where the animals ate from. They probably had to clean out that before they even put him in there. You think the creator of the universe, that God himself would want to come into a palace, be born into a palace with a comfortable bed and an amazing crib. He was also born to parents who were humble and poor. Didn't have much you would think that he would have been born into a family with wealth and status as creator of the universe. If even his announcement about his birth was given to shepherds who were watching over sheep, once again, in my mind, I would think, wouldn't you wanna make all the political and religious leaders know about this so that they could uh, make sure everybody knew? But that's not the way that Jesus did it. The way that God did it was so down to earth I mean, this, it's so remarkable. I think about this. Before, before Jesus came down to earth, he lived in heaven. His home was heaven where all majesty and glory and power and all of that was there available. And it's like, I mean, more than we can even imagine or understand or comprehend. And yet he chose to leave that behind to come to earth, not as a, a man already of full stature and understanding, but as a helpless baby completely dependent upon his parents. Completely dependent upon his parents to take care of him, to feed him, to make sure he had a place to to live and food to eat. Makes me think about the idea, what if a king or a president were to to actually uh, decide, hey, I'm not gonna live in the palace, I'm not gonna live in the big big white house or the big house that's there. Instead, I wanna live in the poorest part of the country, completely dependent upon the poorest people to make sure I'm fed and have clothing and a place to live. Well, we can't imagine that a king or a president or somebody would do that. Why would they when they have all the luxuries there? And I think that's what makes this so remarkable is that you would magnify that by a hundredfold and now you have the creator of the universe doing this. And for us, it's so remarkable to understand that this is a God who did this. He must love us so much, love us more than we could even comprehend. And because of this, this is one of the reasons why I I totally believe that the story in the Bible is true. I'm convinced it's true. This morning, we're gonna begin our new series called Down to Earth. In this series, we're gonna explore two different questions. One is, why did Jesus uh, come down to earth? And the second is, what does that actually mean for us? Now, this idea of down to earth really has a double meaning, two meanings. One of them is the fact, the literal down to earth, that Jesus came down to earth and he's with us. But the second one is based on the phrase down to earth. You know, you call people, hey, they're really down to earth. The idea of of someone who's down to earth is someone who responds to life in humility, that tends to put other people better than themselves. And because of that, we see that being down to earth is the humble way in which God came down to earth, but also the humble way in which people responded to this. And for many of us though, Responding humbly to life, what life brings us, can be extremely difficult. It can be tough. In fact, I know for me, uh, as much as I'd like to admit that I am humble in my responses, I know firsthand that I am much more selfish than I can even understand. In fact, I think if I were to really think about it, I don't think I could even truly grasp how selfish I actually am. I think I'm not as selfish as I am. I think that's true for a lot of us. This idea that we tend to see everything from our perspective and I see it from my perspective and I kind of want to make sure that my world and my life and everything in here is comfortable and happy and feels good and that, that people, that I get, I get the recognition when I want it and I get the approval when I need it and I get all the things that there and the people that are in my world and in my bubble are cared for and I want to make sure that all that is good. It's real easy to respond out of pride and selfishness when I do that. In most cases, when someone says something hurtful to me, I could easily take offense or I could be like, oh, I can't believe they would say that. And what's interesting is that I don't even notice my hurtful response as bad as it is. I don't recognize that I'm responding probably just as bad if not worse. And then when I do that, I feel like it just magnifies that situation. And Of course, they always respond much worse than me, don't they? (laughs) probably not. But this idea of being down to earth means that we recognize who God is and who we are in relation to God. That we truly see God for who he is. And this idea of knowing that, that how we fit in the story of God rather than how God fits into my story. This idea of humility is one of understanding that I put that right perspective of God. C.S. Lewis once quoted and said, he said, you know, he said, humility it's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking about yourself less. And for us, I think that today, the bottom line, the message comes from this idea of humility and what our response should be. So as we think about how we should respond to God and others, let's remember that a humble response is the best response. For many people, we struggle with this. And so, the story today that we're bringing in this group of people that we're going to be talking about, we're going to be focused on, is called the Magi. Now, I don't know if you know or not that that word is actually, I've just found out very recently, that word is actually pronounced magi. Now, in my uh, world growing up and everything that I've said, I have always pronounced it magi, but the, the official pronunciation is magi. So, as we're going through, I'm gonna try my best to pronounce it magi. You'll sometimes hear me say magi and I'll slip that in and please uh, excuse that or whatever. And I think as we go through, we'll try to figure that out. But, but that idea of, of, of it being magi is, is a little bit different for me but that's kind of how it's pronounced. But the idea of this group of people, uh, this group of people being down to earth is actually a little bit backwards. It can be a little bit backwards. In fact, most of the ideas people have about them is not even exactly true. And we're gonna get into some of those in a little bit. But these people were very influential people. Very, and you wonder yourself, all right, if they're very influential people, that's kind of the opposite of what we're talking about here. Why would we include uh, them in a, a series called Down to Earth? Why would we do that? And for us, when we're talking about it, one of the main reasons is because of their response, their humble response to the birth of Jesus. You see, we wouldn't have expected or thought this to be true, but we see as we go through their story, their willingness to search for Jesus and how they do that, and not only that, but the way they respond when they find him. Now, kind of looking at the story here, we look at the the Magi and we begin to see they knew about the birth of Christ. We don't exactly know uh, how they knew that or they didn't even really necessarily know where he's actually be born but they did want, uh, travel to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the largest city there, and they were aware that, that uh, he was born. And so they went to the Jewish city there and they approached King Herod's palace. They figured, hey, who would better know of a, of, of a new king being born than the king itself? So we're gonna see in just a minute, not sure King Herod was aware of that, nor his response was kind of what, what we, we, they would have expected. But let's start reading in the story beginning in Matthew chapter two. It says this, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived unexpectedly in Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship worship him. So one of the things here we see in this section is kind of one of the most fascinating parts of the Christmas story is that there's this arrival of this really mysterious group of people They just kind of show up at King Herod's castle uh, castle, and they have traveled a great distance in order to worship a baby who had been born King of the Jews. Now, they were probably from Iran or Iraq, so this would have taken them months of travel, if not longer, to plan for this trip and to prepare for it and to get everything together. So as we think about this, let's understand they were coming from this humble response of really pursuing and trying to find this God. They must have really believed that this was true. But also to better understand this and their journey and what took place, I think we want to ask ourselves a question, who really is this mysterious group of people that showed up? Now, uh, the Magi were a combination of really of different priests, scientists, and astrologers. Uh, they, they were uh, from the Old Testament. In fact, the Old Testament writer, uh, the Babylonian prophet, a lot of us know his name, uh, Daniel. He was also a part of this group as well as there would have been some priests who accompanied Pharaoh in Moses' time, who also would have been a part of uh, the Magi as well. Uh, In fact, uh, they noted that that the root word, the English word magicians comes from this Persian word. Now, I'm not sure they were magicians doing tricks and stuff, but it is an interesting thought to think about. Uh, But there's a scholar by the name of Dr. Vincent, he writes about them, he says this. He says, Magi, they're a priestly caste among the Persians and, and Medes, which occupied itself principally with the secrets of nature, astrology, and medicine. Now, he also noted that they, they were also skilled at interpreting dreams. And this is interesting, and you see later on, we'll find out a little bit how that might even play a role in, in, in their journey and what they did. But another interesting note about this, this group of people is that there was a large group of people. We've kind of associated this idea that there were three wise kings who uh, came uh, to, to present gifts to, to Jesus. Well, the truth of it, that comes from a song we sing, We Three Kings of Orient Are. Now, I'm not gonna go into singing right now. You don't wanna hear me sing. I know some of you think, well, maybe we do. You don't, so I'm not gonna do that. Uh, you can feel free to go sing that later on at home. But really, there's actually nothing in the Christmas story and in the Bible that indicates that these people were kings or there were just three of them. In fact, some of this idea comes from the fact that maybe they gave three gifts, and we'll talk about that in more detail too. Uh, and so they've assumed there were three people from that. Now, not only do we not know how many people came and were in this group, we don't even really know their names or who they were. Uh, there's nowhere written in here that describes their names. Uh, about 500 AD, people put some names to this, but we're not even sure that that's true. Names like Belthazar, Caspar, Melchior, uh, those are some names that came out, uh, but there's really no way to know even who, who they were. Uh, so when we look at that, we really begin to say, all right, what, what do you think they were feeling and thinking when they arrived? What was King Herod thinking when they arrived? this group of people, this mysterious group of people showed up and said, hey, where, where is the, was the king of Jews born? Now, and we look at here in verse three, we see that King Herod begins to respond. He said, when King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. I think this is interesting here. I'm not surprised that King Herod would be disturbed, but what's interesting is that all Jerusalem too was disturbed. It makes you wonder, did anybody really even know that Jesus was born? Did he even know about this? The fact that he would, this disturbed him is like, oh, wait a minute here. What's going on? You wonder, his mind started working about, hey, I'm not sure I like this. Uh, king Herod wasn't pleased with this, this idea. He wasn't happy with this. You know, they were looking for the one born king of the Jews. And, and he's like, wait a minute, this is a threat to my throne. If there's another leader being born, this isn't good for me. You know, he was only half Jew, and so in his fault, he went, what if this is a rightful heir to the throne and I'm gonna be overthrown and I'm gonna lose my power? And we see Herod here, and we're gonna find out, continue in just a moment, that he really is someone who is ambitious, but also very paranoid, and he was also a murderer. He wasn't a good guy. Anyway, uh, the Magi came to Herod and they asked where the king of the Jews would be born, and he did not know the answer. So Herod gathered together all the chief priests and scribes and say, hey, where in the world would this Messiah be born? Someone give me an idea where to be born. You know, in some, some people's minds, they might think, oh, he wants to go worship them. But there he's like, no, I want to figure out where, where this child is, where my threat is. And so we continue to see their response to him in verse five, it says this, in Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, because out of you will come a leader who will shepherd my people, Israel. So we don't really know all the details of the prophecy here and kind of how it flows together, but we do know this, a few things and a few parts about Christ's birth. And one of those is, as this passage really revealed here that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Now, uh, interesting enough, Bethlehem was actually located about five miles south, um, southwest of Jerusalem. It's actually the same city in which the great leader, King David, was born. So there's some uh, divine uh, connection here we see with that. Uh, but also, it's noteworthy that Bethlehem, at the time of birth of Christ, that some people think there's maybe only about 300 people in that town. It's a small little tiny town. In fact, some people even think only 100 people lived in that town. It's basically this tiny little dot of a town that, that many people didn't even really recognize or know. To understand how remarkable a prophecy that he would be born there 700 years earlier is, think about it from this context. What if in a tiny town, it would be, it'd be like someone prophesying ahead of time that, that uh, there was a little town in West Virginia, a coal mining town, that's not even on a map that a great leader would be born from that. The thought of that is, well, that would be a huge miracle if that ever happened. But it's like that idea that, you know, probably the one part of West Virginia doesn't even have self-service. You know, we know this part. Yeah, that would be an area, of like, wow, how could you predict that? And that's kind of what this was. It was so remarkable in that. So let's look into the rest of the story we'll begin in verse seven and see, continue to see Herod's response here. So says that Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. So you kind of start seeing his wheels working. I right, need to know where, and you to know when the time appeared. You got to get an idea. He's trying to figure out the age of this child. <clears throat> now, we don't know why, uh, but the Magi were confident that this star that they talked about represented the fact that the King of Jews had been born. They were sure of it, and they knew it. They knew this was the birth of the Jesus Messiah who had come, and who had been foretold for thousands of years. You don't travel just a few, you don't travel this distance and this much time and put this much energy in coming like this unless you believe it's true. And they really believe this is true. However, when Herod's asking about this star, it really had significance. You see, in uh, and, and this time, the biblical times here, people interpreted the celestial signs as indicating something important. In fact, Dr. Nolan made a note about this. He says this. He says, conjunctions of constellations, appearances of comets, and the appearance and disappearance of stars were all at times believed to herald the rise and fall of monarchs. Now, there's a lot of secular stories out there that show that unusually have, have, heaven, heavenly signs took, the, took place at, at great leaders' births or deaths. So because of this King Herod, when he hears there's a star that's appeared, this signifies warning signs for him, that there's something real here. He's feeling like this is real. Wait a minute, I need to know when this is, how old this child is, where this is, because he's actually believing there's something of truth to this prophecy, that there's going to be a leader that's going to take over his throne. He was very aware of this, and he was getting concerned. So let's look here at verse 8. It says, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you find them, report back to me because you know why? I wanna go to and worship him. <laughs> you wonder if they actually believed him at that time or if he's able to say that. I, I just really wanna worship him. But you know, deep down, that was not what he was thinking. That's not what he was feeling. He had no interest in worshiping this child. He felt it very threatened about it. And after, even after the Magi left, He actually sent uh, soldiers to Bethlehem to kill all the babies there, firstborn, two years or younger. Gets back to this idea of wanting to know how long the star appeared. Now, interesting thing about that, we don't ever see the answer of how long. We just assume that he recognized that it was about two years or one one and a half to two years. And so here we see uh, verse nine, it says this. After hearing the king, they went on their way. And there it was, the star they had seen in the east. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed beyond measure. So we see here that they had seen it for a while and they traveled and they kind of got to the area there. And then when they went towards Bethlehem, they were able to truly see it. And and, and interesting, in their role as astrologers, they would notice an unusual star. This is something they would pick up on that has suddenly appeared. And for them, it would have great significance and meaning for them. Now, some people think that it was just a, a super, like a, just an alignment of the planets, but if that was the case, it doesn't really make sense that it would lead them right to the house. I think it was a supernatural star that was signifying the birth of the, the Messiah of Jesus. And it was led them right to the home. And we see here, once they find the child, their first response is a humble response. Their first response is to, they were overjoyed beyond measure. They finally arrived. They found the Messiah and the King and the Son of God. And we see here in verse 11 as it continues, it says this, entering the house, they saw the child with Mary and his mother. Now, uh, interesting thing about this is is we see that they entered the house. Now, where was Jesus born? He was born in a stable. Well, now they had taken their time, they had gotten there. We don't know exactly how long it passed. We think a year to two years, that range. And they were now kind of in the routine of, of Jesus as a little toddler. You know, he's kind of moving around and it's a different kind of world. They called him, uh, in a sense, the child rather than the baby. And and we begin to see, in in fact, something is also interesting here is that in Jewish time, that it was basically be looked down upon for a group like this to come in who are non-Jews to be even enter a house. Uh, They would kind of look at it, they would be looked down upon by the Jewish people, they would be seen as unclean. And for a lot of people, they wouldn't even let them in the house. So they traveled this huge distance to see this great, a leader, the one who would be king of the Jews, the Messiah to be born, not even knowing if they'd be able to be entered in and allowed and even welcomed. But they went knowing that this is what they believed to be true. And they also learned here that Mary and Joseph, they were not living in that stable. And so they'd been here for a while. And for they were in a place where, where uh, this is why King Herod wanted to, to kill the firstborn, to remove the threat. It had taken about this long to get there. So anyway, now they entered the house and we see that their response, they were overjoyed, they entered the house and we begin to see their response of a humble response of worship was this, and falling to their knees, they worshiped him. There's a recognition that when someone falls to your knees, that's this humility. It's a sign of humility and their response to to this child, to Jesus, to God. It it was one of a humble down-to-earth response that we all begin to think about, "Should, should we begin to respond to god that way and recognizing how great he is and how we don't compare but god loves us so much and along with this not only did they respond by falling to their knees they also responded by bringing some gifts by bringing gifts it says here they opened then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts gold frankincense and myrrh and being warned in a dream They'll get back to the dream thing. They they they, uh, they would interpret dreams. But be warned of the dream not to go back to Herod, they returned <clears throat> to their own country by another way. Another route. They took another way. So they lived back in another way, so Herod would not know where this child was, where Jesus was. And so as we look at these gifts that were presented to, there's some interesting things about this. This idea that is the word used here presented to God was one that is a Greek word that is used seven different times in the New Testament. Now these seven times, it was always used in religious context and it was always refers to an offering that was presented to God. So in this writing here, it was noted that, that it was significant in the fact that they were offering these gifts to God. This was a, a, an act of worship they were doing. Now, we've also looked, speculated on the significance of what these gifts represent. And the three gifts that they gave represent some different things. Gold speaks of Jesus' royalty, and it refers to one of royalty, so they saw him as king of the Jews. Frankincense represents divinity, and that idea of divinity signifies that they, they looked at him as, as God. And the third one, myrrh, Uh, was a burial spice and often referred to uh, times of of burial, which is interesting because this was a birth, but I believe it was a foreshadowing. It could be a foreshadowing to the fact that Jesus would be the one who would die for us. So also from a a note too here, not just uh, how that looked, this was really beneficial as a practical standpoint. You see, King Herod was sending his soldiers in to rid of, of Jesus, to find a way to get rid of him these gifts here would have been enough resources for them to use to either sell or to give or to do different things that they could now have the resources to flee and to leave so that, that Jesus would not be found by King Herod and his soldiers. To this it would be a great relief of Mary and Joseph to have this and a great response and opportunity for us to see the provision of God and how he loves, loves them in this. Another thing to think about that I think is interesting is that when we look at Christmas time, we all give gifts and we think, well, where does that come from? To me, I think a lot about this, this idea of Jesus was presented with gifts. And so as we're going through the Christmas season and we're thinking about giving people gifts and receiving gifts, I'd love to encourage us to be thinking about how Jesus uh, uh, not only was presented with gifts in an act of worship, but Jesus was a gift to us. And so it's a great time to kind of put that together and think about that. But as we really look here at this story, there really are two different responses, completely different responses uh, to the news that Jesus was born. And for us, on one hand, we've seen that King Herod's response was one of pride. And, And for me, when we think about it, King Herod was prideful in his search for Jesus. And for me, I like to use the idea of when I think about pride, his hands being pushed out. And the reason I like this is to know is that oftentimes when pride comes, what we're doing is we want to keep out things that can uh, impact us negatively. And so this idea of, I want to make sure that, that the bubble and the world that I live in and everything that I, I think is important or good is safe. And so this idea of pride is removing things that are, are, are um, in a sense, uh, I feel that could harm me in any way. Now, at some level of that, that's a good thing to remove things. But pride comes when I put my interest and wants other, rather than what other people want. And King Herod was the, re, responding this way. He was very fearful and losing his power. His search for Jesus wasn't one of humility and wanting to worship him. His search for Jesus was one that was really focused on, I've got to remove move Jesus. I got to get rid of this threat. I don't want to lose my power. I, he, he had a cruel plan and a plot to get rid of Jesus. Now, as we think about how we might relate to Herod here, I don't think any of us are out hopefully having a cruel plot to to do something like this, but the idea is that we still can respond to others very selfishly and respond with pride and put our desires in front of other people. And And this is what I want and what I need. Maybe we put ourselves before others and focus on what we want. Maybe we struggle when other people even have success or someone else gets noticed. The second part of the way that King Herod responded pridefully was in his worship of himself. He was not interested in worshiping Jesus. Herod wanted to be the center of other people's worship. He basically uh, wanted to be the one that, that got the glory and the attention. And how often maybe do we look for that? Other people's praise and adoration. We kind of put that on it. we want that. We put ourselves in the best position to have that. Well, King Herod, Put himself on a pedestal and tried to remove Jesus. And I wonder, maybe at times we put ourselves on a, a pedestal and we try to even remove Jesus from our story instead of realizing we wanna be a part of his story and we can rob him of glory that he wants. Now, uh, a few years back when I lived in North Carolina, there was a, a friend of mine who came to me one time and he came to me and said, Kevin, I just want you to know that I've been really bitter and jealous of you. I was like, whoa, okay, this is, That's kind of hard to hear, but okay. He said, I've been really bitter. He said, in fact, whenever you would go and speak or teach or you got noticed or you did something well or you got recognition or people gave you any good attention, he said, I wished it was me. I was like, oh, wow, okay. And so he said, I want you to forgive me. So we talked for a while and of course worked through that. But it also made me aware of myself and think how many times do I feel that way? Do I feel a little jealous because someone else got attention that I wanted? Or do I feel a little bit... Uh, Bitter because someone else gets something. Side note, I do this with sports. When other teams win, I don't get frustrated. I'm like, I get jealous of that. But other than that too, the reality of just our world and how we we long for that attention, that praise and adoration of people. And that's exactly what the response of Herod was. But here on the other hand, we see uh, the Magi's response as one of humility. We see that they were humble in their search for Christ. They were the ones who found Jesus in the story. They went to amazing lengths to find him. And when they did, they were overjoyed. They fell to their knees and they gave gifts and excessive amounts of gifts. You see, we understand they had a a familiarity with the Jewish scripture and they understood that this was something special here. And so they responded with humility, given of their time and and their gifts, understanding that, that Jesus was one to be worshiped. They spared no expense at all. The second response they gave was one a humble response in the way that they worshiped God. Reading again in Matthew two eleven, we see this. We see that entering the house, they saw the child with Mary and his, his mother. And falling to their knees, they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasure and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You see, I believe it is God's desire for us too, that we look for him, we seek after him, and we find him. And when we do, we respond in a humble way. We worship him as the Maji did when they found him. For you today, if you already know Jesus, then we, our prayer is that this time of year, you search for him in a deeper way and worship him in a way that maybe is fresh and new, that you begin to seek after him. But before we can truly worship him, we do need to belong to Christ and have that relationship with him. And through our faith in who Jesus is and, and what he's done for us. You see, Jesus is God, he's God's son, who came down to earth to die in our place. And he was the only one who could do this because he was born a baby, a child, lived his life, never sinned. He did not deserve to die. So when he died, he was able to step in our place. So for us to have a relationship with God, all we need to do is put our faith and trust that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's the one that died in our place. And then we can be restored to God. You see, some of us perhaps don't know where we stand today. We don't know where we stand today in our our relation with God. I wanna encourage you, if that's you and you're thinking about, I'm not sure where I am, uh, I encourage you to take time and pray. Pray that God would reveal that to you. Also wanna encourage you, if you'd like to talk to someone, that we have people out in our Next Steps uh, space in our lobby that would love to have a conversation with you about this. And they would love to hear more about your questions, about your faith, and kind of figuring out, walking you through that. I also wanna encourage you to this Christmas season, it would be a good idea to see, seek after him, maybe reading the Gospel of John. I encourage you to take maybe one chapter a day, it's 21 chapters, so if you start in the next couple days, you can finish before Christmas. But take one chapter a day and read that as a family or by yourself or sometime with that. And so as we think today, as we close for here, here today, I want us to think about two different responses to this remarkable down-to-earth story of the birth of Christ. On one hand, we have the response of pride. And on the other hand, we have the response of humility. And I know some of us would really like to admit here that we respond more than we like with a response of pride. We'd like, we like, we, we don't, we have trouble admitting that. We have trouble saying that. And we want to, if we were asked, I know we'd say we want to respond humbly. But most of all, the reality is this is harder than we think. And so every time this week and this month, you're faced with a difficult decision, you should ask yourselves, am I going to respond with pride? or humility. Every time you're faced with a person who's hurt you, ask yourself, am I responding to them with with pride or am I responding to them with humility? You see, every time your parents, your kids, your spouse, boyfriend, girlfriends, neighbors, somebody you work with, somebody says something that you feel is selfish and you think, why would you say that? Ask yourself, what would the humble response be here? You see, the best response we can give is a humble response, is one out of humility. And the, the Magi chose to respond out of humility in their search for Jesus, and King Herod chose to respond out of pride. He wanted to remove Jesus from the story. In fact, he actually wanted to make the story all about him. The story of the Magi is really a story about God, not about them. It's a story about how God came to earth in a humble way, and they got to be a part of his story. So knowing this should help us that no matter what we're we're dealing with, no matter what's going on in our lives, no matter if you come from wealth or you don't, no matter if you come, you are influential with many people or just a few, no matter how you feel or what you're going through or what you're dealing with during this Christmas season, I wanna encourage you to take time to worship Jesus with a humble response. And when you're faced with things, to ask yourself, what is the humble response here? And when we do that, we can know that the best response we can give is a humble response response. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you for your truth. We pray, Lord God, as we go through this day and this time and this season, that we'll recognize the times of our life when we've responded out of pride rather than humility. God, I pray that we'll be able to look to you and thank you for the graciousness you have and the overwhelming love you give to us. God, I pray that you also continue to be with Pastor Tim pray that you help his body to heal and continue to to work through this and have a speedy recovery. God, we pray that you are encouraging him and your peace rules in his heart and his life at this time. Encourage us to continue to seek you in this season, to worship you in a humble way. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.